Let's open our Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 2. We finished Ezra. We're in Nehemiah. We're looking at uh, Israel in the second temple period. Nehemiah chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 1 through 8 this morning. The topic, Nehemiah's sadness prompts the king to ask him what is wrong with him. The title of the message, I See a Sad Mood Rising, (laughs) sung to the tune of When You Wish Upon a Star. Anyway, let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for uh, your great goodness towards us. We pray, Lord, that each heart that is here that belongs to you would be filled and refreshed this morning, having spent some time in the Word. We're also always cognizant that there might be a person or more than one person, Lord, who doesn't know you. Maybe who's gone to church for a long, long time, but will come to the realization even today, Lord, that they have never been born again by your Holy Spirit. Pray, Lord, that your Spirit would uh, share Christ with them and their need for him, Lord, to come to the cross and have their sins forgiven. We appreciate the work of Nehemiah in this ancient time. We want to learn from it and apply it to our own lives today without going beyond what uh, the text says. And so guard and direct our comments, Lord, we pray. And may our hearing be anointed by you. We pray it in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. Star-Lord claimed to have a plan for defeating Ronan in order to obtain the Infinity Stone. You can tell I'm obsessed with the Marvel movies. But anyway, when pressed, he admitted that he only had 12% of a plan. Groot kindly commented, I am Groot. And it was translated to be, it's better than 11% of a plan. Colonel John Hannibal Smith, leader of the A-Team, fond of saying, I love it when a plan comes together. The movie inspired by the TV show had the tagline, there is no plan B. Nehemiah was definitely a man with plan A. At the end of chapter one, we read, O Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayers of your servants who desire to fear your name. And let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Emphasis on this day. After months of praying, the day arrived on which Nehemiah planned to take action. His asks in chapter 2 definitely reveal careful planning. Verse 7, we're going to read, Furthermore, I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the region beyond the river, that they may uh, permit me to pass through until I come into Judah. So Nehemiah had planned out his travel before he talked to the king. And then in verse 8, Give me a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he must give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel, which pertains to the temple, for the city wall, and for the house that I will occupy. And so again, he had planned ahead as to how he would rebuild the walls and what materials it would require. So he was planned. In chapter 1, Nehemiah was introduced as a prayer. In chapter 2, he is introduced as a planner. We're going to look at Nehemiah's planning with an eye towards God's plan for each of us. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, your plan should be to discover God's plan. And number two, your plan should be to implement 
God's plan. Verses one through four, your plan should be to discover God's plan. Now, I know it sounds a little like double talk, but it's true. If you're in Christ, God has a plan for you. It involves his working in you and then through you. The Apostle Paul revealed this precious truth when he said, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's Ephesians 2.20. God is working in you. You are his workmanship. It means you're a beautiful new creation, a work of art, predestined to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. And God is working through you. He has good works prepared for you to walk in. It's subtle, but notice Paul doesn't say you have works to perform. He says you have works to discover that are pre-planned by God. Your part is to walk in them, meaning you're to walk by faith in the Spirit in every situation that God presents to you. And so it's not double talk. It's keeping our dependence upon the Lord to finish what he has started in us by working through us. Not by our works, but as we walk by faith in the works that he has prepared in advance for us to discover. Nehemiah discovered God's plan and began to walk in it. And so let's start in that last verse of chapter one so that we are understanding the context of how all this happened. And so verse 11 of chapter one, O Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name and let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, for I was the king's cupbearer. Comparing the dates in chapter one with those in chapter two, we learned that Nehemiah had been praying and intermittently fasting about the sad conditions in Jerusalem for about four months. In those four months, he discovered God's plan for him was to travel to Jerusalem and rebuild its broken down walls. We don't know a lot about Nehemiah before we meet him as the king's cupbearer. We would call him a wine taster. But I think it's safe to speculate that God's plan was way beyond his training and his talent. Let me put it another way. If you were looking for someone to build an addition to your house, you wouldn't search Angie's list for wine tasters. And so that's the situation that you're presented with. The man that God is going to use in a remarkable way was a cupbearer to the king. He was a wine taster. The work God has prepared in advance for you by which he will be glorified, it can seem foolish to you and to others. One of the first things we need is an openness to whatever God wants to do through us. The less our serving him has to do with our abilities, the better. And I'm not, I'm not saying smart people can't minister for the Lord, uh, but it's better if you're just kind of an average individual. It's better if you're me, basically. I mean, I, I don't think anybody's ever come up to me and said, you're so smart. How do you, uh, man, you, you just have an, it's a, I see that hand. God bless you back there. <laughs> but I hear this a lot of times from people. They say, I, I went and heard this guy speak, and the guy, he's just a genius. I mean, it's an amazing, his intellect is so, you know, I don't know how his head can hold his intellect and stuff. And I thought, well, I feel sorry, feel sorry for that guy because he's getting all the glory when he comes up to the, you know, the judgment seat and is expecting a big reward. He's going to get a jujube or something like that, you know. But anyway, uh, it, your training, God wants to use your training and your talent and all the, that you are, uh, but 
don't pigeonhole God into thinking, hey, I could never build a wall because I'm a wine taster. Or I could never do this because I'm that. God's going to use you. Nehemiah mentioned other servants who were praying. This could refer to Jews in general who might also be burdened for the welfare of Jerusalem. But it reads more like a prayer group that Nehemiah had gathered together. You're only going to discover God's plan for you while you're in fellowship with other believers. For example, in the New Testament, we read a lot about the gifts of God, the Holy Spirit. So you're born again, the Spirit lives within you, and he wants to gift you in certain ways, use you supernaturally. Except for the gift of tongues as a personal prayer language, aren't all the other listed gifts for the purpose of serving others? The contemporary English version of the Bible puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 12, 7. The Spirit has given each of us a special way of serving others. And so uh, since you're to be gifted and since gifts are to serve others, it uh, follows that you need to be in regular personal fellowship with others in a local church. Otherwise, you're not going to be exercising your gift or discerning God's will or plan for your life. And so we know in the last days, the Hebrews tells us that there will be, uh, people have to be exhorted to go to church. They won't want to go to church anymore. It's a sign of the last days. Now we have all, you know, everything's online. We're online, and I think that's a good thing. And most of you use that as a tool. Hey, I can't make it to church today, and, you know, I, I have this on in the background, and, or I watch this when I'm on vacation, that kind of a thing. And, and it's a great tool. We're not belittling it. But you all know a lot of Christians who just don't go to church anymore. You know, maybe the church burned them. Maybe they got lazy. Who knows why? Uh, you, they're saved. They're on their way to heaven. But they're, that's not God's plan for their life. Because if he's gifted them, and he has, every Christian has gifts, they need to be with other Christians in order to serve others. You can't serve others in your jammies with a cup of coffee at home every week. You're just not doing that. And so um, you, I can say that to you guys because you're here. And, and uh, although I, sometimes I want to just wear my jammies with a cup of coffee. Would you, you probably wouldn't mind, right? I've earned that right. No, maybe not. <laughs> and it came to pass, uh, verse 1, uh, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, that I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had never been sad in his presence before. How are we to understand this sad countenance? I think it was the plan to get the king to engage in conversation. I submit two observations in support of that. The first observation is that Nehemiah indicated he was going to act on a certain day. The only action we read about is his sadness. The second observation is that he specifically mentioned his need for mercy in the sight of the king, as if the king was going to see something that he would need to be merciful about. And, and so I think Nehemiah's plan was to be sad in the presence of Artaxerxes. You could say, therefore, that the future of Jerusalem depended on one man's ability to make a sad face. Not too sad, just sad enough. I wonder if he practices. I have a, you know, I have a selfie face that I make. People make fun of me, but maybe I just don't like my smile. And so if I take a selfie, I go like this. <laughs> so I could just, is that what Nehemiah did? Did he say, hey, 
Hey, guys, I need to practice this. Let, let me know if I'm looking sad. Yeah, that's sad, but it's a little bit too much. It's, it's, it's a little too tragic sad. Okay, how about this? And, and you know, he, he had to come up with just the right face that Artaxerxes would notice, but not overreact to. And so this is really, I just think it's funny. I, I really do. And, and you, you need to admit that it's funny, but this is what, this is what happened. Uh, he, he said, today I'm gonna act. I'm gonna act sad in the king's presence. He's gonna notice it, and then I'm gonna go for it. It's a stupid plan that worked. <laughs> I mean, really, it is, if you think about it. Uh, on, on, on paper, it doesn't seem like much, but in verse two, the king said to me, why is your face sad since you're not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. So I became dreadfully afraid. So now he had engaged the king. His plan was working, but there was lots to fear. Artaxerxes wasn't someone you wanted to misserve. These Persian kings might kill you for less. They didn't have absolute power at all times, but uh, he could do a lot to harm uh, Nehemiah. And, uh, you know, obviously he wasn't doing his job properly if he was sad in the presence of the king. And so he said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad? When the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies waste and its gates are burned with fire. Now that's a bold ask. He was respectful but brutally honest. Any plan of God's is going to be without deceit. It's not going to be manipulative or tricky. It shouldn't come across like a sales pitch. Have you ever realized, you know that moment you realize you're being sold on something? I, I, my, my real first experience with this as an adult, this couple in our church were selling insurance. And the gal, um, she came up to us and said, hey, I just got this job and they, I, you know, I haven't really started yet, but I need practice giving my presentation. And, you know, so all it is is just practice. And I said, oh, well, come over, you know. We'll, we'll have dinner first. And, then you, and so we had dinner. We had a nice time of fellowship. And then it was on like Donkey Kong. I mean, it was, she didn't need practice at all. She was a shark. Uh, I, and I ended up buying insurance. It was insane, you know. And uh, they, went through, they went through our whole church like that a couple at a time. And then they felt led to move on to another church. And anyway, it was crazy. And so that's, you know, that was in the insurance realm. In the church, you shouldn't borrow technique. You shouldn't come in and say, hey, I, I got du- maybe we could dupe people into tithing more by doing stuff like that or set people up in different ways. So when you come up with a plan that if it's from God, it's not going to be deceitful in any way. Uh, it's, it's, um, I remember one time I was, how was this? Oh, yeah, yeah. I didn't know I was involved in a deceitful plan. But uh, these people, this was down in San Bernardino, they asked us to come over and teach a, a little lesson on something to a small, like a family. And we knew all these people. So we were over there. And about halfway into what I had, was talking about, there was a knock on the door. It was another couple and uh, family members who were not saved who they had invited over for pie. And they just happened to come over for pie while we were doing a Bible study. And so they made them sit down and listen to the rest of the Bible study, thinking that it would be... I thought they were going to knife me. 
uh, on the way out, you know, because the whole thing was a big setup. You could tell they were angry and bitter and upset. Just what you want when you're sharing Christ is, you know, to have faked people out. And so that's not God's plan. And so verse four, then the king said to me, what do you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. Nehemiah prayed under his breath before answering. I do that all the time, not because I'm so spiritual, but because I'm not. Supercalifragilistic, that's what Mary Poppins wants you to say when you don't know what to say. That doesn't work in discipleship or counseling. I've tried it. (laughs) But you can pray under your breath silently and the Lord will answer. I know we can't be certain, but it doesn't seem like Nehemiah, the cupbearer's first thought upon hearing about the walls of Jerusalem was, I'm the man to go and rebuild them. After all, I'm a great cupbearer. And if that was his first thought, he most certainly had little or no training or talent to accomplish that task. He discovered it was God's plan to send him. Through prayer and fasting, the details came together. You and I probably don't need to be sent somewhere. We're most likely right where God has brought us. His plan is to make us more like Jesus day by day. We discover the particulars as we yield to his indwelling Holy Spirit acting and reacting as a believer can and should. In other words, we just walk with the Lord through our life. God puts things before us or around us, you might even say, where we live, where we work, where we go, uh, and, and we're to walk in the Spirit by faith. And that is how we discover those works and his plan unfolds. And so walk this way and you will discover God's plan and your works in particular that contribute to making you like your Lord over your lifetime. And we will awaken his likeness at one point. And that's a glorious thing. Now in verses five through eight, your plan should be to implement God's plan. And before we get too much further, I want to clarify something about the phrase God's plan. I don't want us to get the idea that there is always a three-point or a five-point step-by-step blueprint-style plan that we are to implement. In other words, we're not looking at Nehemiah and saying this is the universal template for how God plans and how you should plan. No, this is what God did in Nehemiah's life. An example might be better than an explanation. Abram, who would later have his name changed by God to Abraham, discovered and implemented God's plan for his life. Here's the plan. Here's the beginning of the plan. It's in Genesis 12, 1 and 4. Now the Lord had said to Abram, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him. Abram, take off. I'll show you where you're going later. Could you call that a plan? It sounds like 12% of a plan to me. But it was enough for Abram to begin walking and he would discover much more of God's plan as he simply obeyed. Some of God's plans in your life will be Abram-like, and some are Nehemiah-like. There's no one-size-fits-all when it comes to walking with Jesus, not even in your individual life. And so um, we want to always, I don't want to use the word reduce, but we, we want to always reduce the Bible to a few points that we can apply universally in every situation. And we're certainly seeing that Nehemiah was a tremendous planner and he was ready for any contingency. Maybe that's why when he gets to Jerusalem, he builds the walls in 52 days. 
So it was unheard of. It's, it's an amazing thing. Uh, but that doesn't, that doesn't necessarily translate into every situation and every plan that God has for our lives. And a lot of times, if we, and the reason I'm saying this is if we sit around all the time thinking, well, I, the plan isn't fully formulated yet, and I don't have point three, well, then you're never going to take off one foot ahead of the other like Abram did. Abram didn't say, well, as soon as you rename me Abraham and finish all the promises, I'm ready to go. He just took off trusting the Lord had a plan for his life and seeking to walk in it. So just keep that in mind, not only today, but as you read the Bible, um, you know, uh, be realistic about it. Not everything you read is exactly the way it's going to happen in your life, but the general principles are there. And so that's what we're looking at. And so Nehemiah, he did have a three-point, bullet point, PowerPoint presentation. Point number one, send me to Judah. Verse five, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Now, twice Nehemiah mentioned his father's tombs to the king. As cupbearer, Nehemiah did more than serve uh, and taste and serve wine. The position gave him close, even intimate contact with both the king and his queen. They would confide in him or at least talk with him. He would converse with them, probably even counsel them carefully. So perhaps Nehemiah knew something about the king and queen that we don't, that they would be moved by his connection to his father's. And so we don't know why he uh, camped out on this particular phrasing, but it seemed to be meaningful in getting the king to understand uh, where he was coming from. He had a clear starting point. It wasn't just let me go to Judah. It was send me to Judah. He wanted support, not just permission. And so once the door was opened... Uh, Nehemiah had, uh, I don't know if he had rehearsed this, but he didn't just mealy mouth it. He didn't say, well, you know, I'd like to go to Judah someday and see what I can do. He says, I want you to send me to Judah so that I can rebuild the walls. And for this task in that political climate, implementing God's plan would require support. He would definitely need the support of the Persian king in order to get this job done. Now, here's how I'd apply that to us one way. A believer may think they've discovered God's plan and want to implement it, but you should seek the spiritual support of the fellowship of believers. Not everything that I think is a plan from God is something from heaven. It may be my will, not God's will, so confirmation from the body of Christ is a good thing. Uh, And so, uh, hey, we've tried lots of things over the years here that that haven't worked uh, the way that we thought they would. And all of us make plans that, you know, we think that God is moving us in a certain direction and sometimes it's just our, our own personal desire. And we miss it. I remember, uh, not to pick on Navy pilots because I, I, they're heroes, uh, but I remember this one a former Navy pilot in our fellowship, he came up to me one Sunday and he said, Pastor Gene, I'm so depressed, I can't find a job anywhere. I got out of the military, I'm a trained pilot, and I I have no job offers, and I don't know how I'm gonna deal with my family. And so uh, I said, well, let's pray with, and his wife, so so his wife came over, and and, uh, I said, hey, you know, your husband just told me how he doesn't have any job offers, and and she stopped me, and she goes, oh, wait, he has job offers. He has a lot of job offers, good job offers, but none of them involve flying an airplane. And I said, is that true? And he goes, well, yeah. And I go, oh, take a job. 
And that, that was it, you know? And so his, his idea at that time was that God's plan for his life was that he would fly the friendly skies. And uh, it just wasn't. And so we sometimes get into uh, our own way of thinking. Uh, then the king said to me, the queen, queen also sitting beside him, how long will your journey be? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a time. There's no reason to think this queen was Esther. It'd be fun if it was, but it wasn't. It reads like they were having a quiet dinner with Nehemiah pouring the beverages as usual. It doesn't say, but is strongly implied that Nehemiah answered the king's questions. He'd thus given a great deal of thought to implementing his plan, enough that he could give a reasonable estimate as to how much leave from his position he would need. He could break it down to round-trip travel as well as time in Jerusalem rebuilding. Maybe he even had charts. I don't, I don't know. But when the king asked him, he was ready. He said, it's going to take me this long to get there, this long to get back. I think I can build the walls in this amount of time. Because after all, he was an employee of the government. And I don't know what kind of vacation schedule they had, but he was asking for time off, time away. And you know, now all of a sudden you think, well, the king's cupbearer, this is a pretty important position. This is a guy that's willing to be poisoned to death uh, as people are trying to kill me. I don't know how many cupbearers you have in, you know, in reserve. It's always the, in those uh, gangster movies, it's always the day when Fredo, you know, is assigned to you because the regular guy isn't there that you get hit and stuff. And so this, this is a really touchy situation. But he said, hey, this is exactly what I have in mind. Sometimes meticulous planning is called for. For example, I'm aware of several fellowships that purchased land, expecting that as soon as they did, their numbers and their income would swell. I, I don't know how people think this. I really don't. But it, it's, a, it's a very common error, I believe, that churches make. They think, hey, as soon as we buy that or build that, then money's going to start flowing in, people will be excited, uh, you know, that kind of a thing. And it almost never happens that way. Uh, it, now, if God tells you to do that, God says, hey, I want you to go forward by faith, that's, that's one thing. I believe that that could happen. But generally speaking, there's, there's just a, a kind of a virus that takes over in the life of a pastor. And you think, all I have to do is buy land and thousands of people will come and throw money at me. And uh, they throw dirt clods at you is what they do. And so, you know, meticulous planning is a good thing in some situations. Here's another example. Organization Youth with a Mission, YWAM, good missions group. They had, or maybe they still have a training facility in Hawaii. If you applied to go to their school and they accepted you, you had to have all of the finances up front to get to Hawaii, otherwise they wouldn't accept you. Well, I didn't know this, but uh, we ran into a guy, he was from Burma, and he had gotten from Burma to Hanford. I don't know how that's even possible. Why Hanford, I don't know, but uh, I, didn't, I didn't know the backstory, and so he said he was on his way to YWAM, and I thought, I'll just call YWAM and we'll send him, you know, we'll give him the rest of the money that he needs to go, and so I called YWAM, and they said, yeah, we don't want him. We told him if he didn't have all the money not to leave Burma. And what did he do? He left Burma and he got to Hanford. So he's your responsibility now. And so, we did, so I turned around and I said, hey, I will give you money to go to Burma. How is that? I don't know whatever happened to him. He's still probably, maybe he got as far as uh, 
Portland for all I know. I don't know, but how do you get to Burma, from Burma to Hanford? Is that, is that the regular ro- road? <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, but it was true. So, uh, you know, planning, sometimes you need it. Point number two, authority, verse seven. Furthermore, I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the region beyond the river that they must permit me to pass through till I come to Judah. There had been significant opposition to the resettlement of Jews to Jerusalem and the rebuilding of the walls especially. Nehemiah wanted the authority of the king to travel and to build. How does this speak to implementing God's plan? Well, it's important to remember and to respect that we who are in Christ have been granted great authority, great spiritual authority. For example, you have the authority on earth to tell a sinner that at the cross, their sins can be forgiven along with the guilt and shame associated with them. You can confidently promise them that they will be new creations in Jesus, born again recipients of the indwelling Holy Spirit, and you guarantee them eternal life in heaven in a sinless glorified body. You do that with no, do you think about that? You do that with no hesitation. Not just because you believe it, which you do, but because you have the authority to say that and know that you are 100% accurate. And that's a tremendous thing. Just to compare, Buddhism says that when we die, the mind that has been developed and conditioned for this life reestablishes itself in a new life. This new individual will grow a new personality that is conditioned by those life circumstances. Dying and reestablishing itself continues until you hit nirvana, a state of enlightenment that does not desire or crave, but simply lives in peace with love. In other words, after you die, you'll be reincarnated. That's what that boils down to. And you can be reincarnated as an animal or a human. Rebirth over and over and over again. That's lame. I don't know why anybody would want to believe that. You mean after all of this, I can come back as a rabbit? Yes. Oh, sign me up. That, that, yeah, it's, it's crazy. Back to our thoughts about implementing God's plan with authority. Be careful. Try not to misspeak with all this authority God's given you. Don't put burdens on people that are unbiblical and legalistic. Don't misrepresent God's grace. Be be careful with this authority, especially if you're in a position of leadership. On the other side of that, and I think this is good for all of us, you should always know something about the author whose book you're about to read or the doctrine of the Bible teacher that you listen to or the perspectives of biblical counselors you seek out. It's, you know, people think, well, I need, I need counseling. Well, you probably do, but you need the right counseling. You need to know, and I know this sounds funny, but think about it and it makes sense. You need to know what a person is going to tell you before you ask them. Because there are so many different perspectives, especially if you go out into the secular realm for counseling or for advice. Because some of those people believe they're coming back as bunny rabbits. And that's how they're going to counsel you. And let me just say right now, you probably don't want to talk to somebody who believes in reincarnation. You're not going to have your marriage problem solved that way. You know. But uh, so anyway, be, be careful. Know something. Read the liner jacket. You know, people give me books all the time and they want me to listen to stuff. And I always ask them, who is this guy? Who is this gal? What do they believe? Where are they coming from? And, you know, we have such a thing now. It's called the interweb. And you can... You can go on the interweb, the World Wide Web, and you can find out things about just about anybody. And you can say, oh, I see where this guy's coming from. Okay, 
This guy's an amillennialist, and so this is what he's going to say. Or this guy is this or that and stuff. And I'm not saying it's a bad thing. It's just, it's a good thing, especially uh, to keep you on track. So implement God's plan with his authority, being careful to apply grace with compassion. And then point number three, the materials list. Verse eight, in a letter uh, to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he must give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel, which pertains to the temple, for the city wall, and for the house uh, that I will occupy. And the king granted them to me according to the good hand of my God upon me. This guy was thorough. He had thought it through right down to his own need for housing while on site. He knew he, how he wanted to build and with what materials, taking into account what was readily available to him in the area. We would say that he counted the cost, always a good idea. While we must take ventures of faith, when called upon, we should not presume upon the Lord in foolishly tempting him. We could also talk about the materials with which we are to build for God. The Apostle Paul illustrated it by saying, if anyone builds on a foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw. Those are all possible building materials that were used in temples being constructed in the first century. Think of the projects around your house. There are always a choice in materials. Some will do the job but won't last very long. You might choose them when you're putting your house on the market. Other materials have a much higher quality. You choose them if you're planning on living in your house for a long time. So if you're getting your house ready for sale, you might use formica as a countertop. If you're going to live there for a while, you might get marble from Italy, for all I know. You know, that kind of a thing. And so we have a choice of building materials as Christians, either common or costly materials, which are either more or less permanent. In practical terms, it boils down to how much you're willing to sacrifice in order to implement God's plan through the works you discover he has for you. I've told you about the couch, the famous couch that was donated to our old office on 11th Avenue. One of the cushions was eaten out by a German shepherd. And so you could hide that by flipping the cushion over and it looked like a really nice couch. But if you sat on that side, there was no support and you would sink in. And so we left it there for a long time for fun. It wasn't always funny, but it was fun. But anyway, time and the talent and the treasure that you apply in your walk, is it like that couch? Are you giving God couches, as it were, that have no foundation? That's something to think about. God's a planner. He has big plans for you. One day, you're gonna awaken the likeness of your Savior, Jesus. In the meantime, walk by faith in every situation, yield it to the Holy Spirit, and you'll discover and implement his pre-planned works for you. Here's a final exhortation by A.W. Tozer. He reminds us, and I quote, God wants worshipers before workers. Indeed, the only acceptable workers are those who have learned to worship. Let's pray.